What I want to do this morning is to read chapter one with you and then work into chapter two, where chapter one gives us a a view of God's cosmic purposes. What is God doing in this world? What is God's purposes? And then what chapter two does is, is it pinpoints us as individuals who have put our repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are we? What are, what are we doing here? And so that's what I'd like to do with us this morning. We'll read chapter one. And then before I get into chapter two, I'll say a word of prayer. And then we'll consider the truths of chapter two. So read with me here, not out loud, but you can just follow along as I read in Ephesians chapter one. He writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints, to the holy ones who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accord to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. When he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray together. Dear Father, this is your word. And so as your word, we want to properly understand it, properly submit to it. We want to be impacted by it. Your scripture tells us that it was by your word that you created the heavens and the earth. It was by your voice or your breath that you brought life to inanimate things, inanimate flesh. And we know that today you can use that same breath, that same voice to bring a spiritual vitality to us. And we desire it, Father. We want to hear from you. And I pray this morning as we consider the meaning and the substance of your word that we would be fed in our hearts and in our spirits to be the type of people that you've called us to be. Guide us towards that end, we ask, as we consider your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in chapter two. Now chapter two is the text I want us to consider in depth this morning. I read chapter one, however, because chapter one is the context of chapter two. In fact, what Paul is doing in chapter one is he's giving to us a grand plan, God's plan for the fullness of time. This plan isn't an ad hoc plan. God didn't come along and say, oh no, man fell into sin. I better do something about that oh no, they are going to crucify my son. I better use that somehow in my plan. Because as you notice in Ephesians, it was from the foundation of the world. When God created this world, he knew that man would fall into sin. And he planned that Jesus would come. But he didn't just plan that. He actually planned something for you. And by you, I mean not only you individually, but you as a church body. He has a plan for you. And so sometimes we as believers are often looking for, okay, so what's God's will for my life? And often that, that's, you know, who should I marry? What school should I go to? What job should I pursue? And those are really important questions. But there's a broad answer to that question. What does God want me to do with my life? And that's what's provided to us in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so what I want us to do is consider chapter 2 here. Now, I'm going to use an analogy here, um, a, an analogy of infomercials. Anybody here enjoy watching infomercials? All right, so, so apparently I'm just really weird. Because I, I, I can just, I mean, I, for some reason, I, you know, I turn those on and, and I'm addicted. I'm just watching and, and, and you know what's coming next, right? I mean, if you've ever watched one, you've watched all of them. You, you know exactly what's going to happen. But what, what do infomercials try to do? Well, they, they always try and present a problem and they universalize the problem, Right. And in fact, they make the problem much, much worse than it, than it essentially is, you know. So um, <clears throat> you, can, you can YouTube this if you want sometime. Uh, uh, it, it's something like a YouTube clip that says, uh, people in infomercials can't live in this world. And they just post together a, a, a clipping of all the people on infomercials at the beginning of them showing that they just can't function in life, you know. So they open the, the cabinet and like bulls, like 50 bulls roll on them, you know. And you've got to have some solution to that, right? But what they want to do is they want to present a problem that needs a solution. They offer the solution. Then what they offer is a, um, usually some sort of guarantee and uh, and this beautiful thing. So imagine it this way. You've got an acne medication 
And uh, so what are they going to present to you? They're going to present to you the ugly before, right? They take this picture of this person, and prior to the picture, you know, they ask them to squeeze every pimple on your face so that it's nice and red and, and look like your dog just died, you know, I mean, like so sad about life. And, and they get this picture of the ugly before, right? And then you get a little bit later, uh, after this person has apparently gone through this program, you get all of a sudden, now there's this picture where previously, you know, it, was, it looked like, you know, the most dreary day in the world. Now it's the sunshiniest day in the world. They're the happiest people ever. Their complexion is completely clear. And then they try and sell you the product. So you've got the ugly before, the beautiful after, and then the, the product is what they want to present to you. Now, <clears throat> One of the things that I, I, clearly Ephesians is not giving us an infomercial here, but I think as we think of what Paul does in Ephesians chapter two, is that he essentially gives to us the ugly before, the beautiful after, and there's no deception in this one, the beautiful after, and then he presents to us the potent product. And that's, that's the simple illustration and analogy we're going to work through here as we consider Ephesians chapter 2. So let's start with the first point here. What Paul wants to present to us is the ugly before. How bad is the situation? How bad is the ugly before? And we're going to find that the ugly before is as ugly as it can get. Notice what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. Speaking about the audience here, he says, And you were, now that's past tense, and we'll talk about why that is, but, and you were dead. Let me ask you a question. Is there a, is there a state to be worse than, than dead? Uh, not within this physical world, right? I mean, that's, that's the lowest of low. You're dead? That's, that's bad. I mean, this is the ugly before. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, I think it's, clear here within the book of Ephesians that there's a sense in which we're dead because we sin, but the opposite is true. We sin because we're dead. What Paul's talking about here is not a physical death because, of course, he's not, talking to people, he's not talking to people who were once dead and have been raised to physical life. He's talking to people who he's saying, you were once spiritually dead. This was the state that you were in. And he says, you were dead. Well, how did they get into that deadness? We could work our way back to Genesis, but let's just look at what he says here in this passage, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. In which you once walked, or what once lived. <clears throat> and then he describes what a lifestyle of those outside of Christ looks like. What does it look like to live without Christ? He says... <clears throat> You are following the course of this world. You followed the course of this world. You went the direction that the rest of the world went in. This was just natural to you. Um, apparently, there's a Kansas City game coming on. My, my wife and I went to, uh, to Denny's this morning, and everybody had Kansas City shirts on, right? And, uh, and you, you get all of these, uh, you know, everybody's got a shirt on. So, so Hannah said, there, there must be something going on. And I asked Eric, and he said, yeah, there's, there's a football game apparently going on, on today. And uh, I, I say that because if you, have you ever been to a football game? And, uh, and imagine you're, you're at a football game, and, uh, and you come out of the football game, and then you realize you forgot your hat or your, your phone or something, and you try and go back in. What's that like? 
<laughs> you ever try to go against the grain, right? And, and here's the course of the world, right? They're all headed this direction. And he says, you were with them. You, you were following the course of this world. You were doing what everybody else was doing. This was so natural to you. And if anyone asks why you're going that way, you'd say, well, this is the way to go. Following the course of this world. But notice why that's a problem. Because we, we live in a world today that says, actually, that's exactly what you should do. You should just do what everybody else does. Why is that a problem? Well, let's continue on. You're not just following the course of this world. The second thing he, is, he says is, you are following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's, he's referencing Satan here. He's saying you are not simply following the course of this world, but the course of this world is determined by the God of this world. And the God of this world is Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. Notice the, the language. He is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, there's a number of things to, to think about in reference to that. It says that he is a spirit at work. It's really fascinating to me that this word working here is a word that Paul uses in different contexts here. He, he, noted, he noted it back here in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 11. He says, um, in him, that is in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accord with the counsel of his will. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that God is at work in the things of this world to accomplish his end. This is the same word he's then using in reference to mankind, general mankind, those who are outside of Christ. The spirit of Satan is at work in them. This is precisely what Jesus says, even to uh, sons of Abraham. Remember as he's speaking with them and uh, they say, who's your father? We know who our father is. And Jesus says, oh, you think your father is Abraham, but it's not. You are sons of the devil because you do his will. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying you are presently being Led, that is, those who are outside of Christ are being led to follow the course of this world. Yes, this is the direction the world is going. But the reason the world is going that way is because there is a spirit at work. And we tend in the Western world not to think in terms of spirit things. You're going to find when you get into Ephesians, especially chapter 6, Paul says our ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood but against spiritual powers. That's what Paul's saying here. This is the direction of our world because this is the spirit that you don't see, but is present in our world, leading people in the direction that they're headed. In fact, he calls them sons of disobedience. They are led to disobey God and his standards and what he has called us to do because they are being led by this spirit. Now we're gonna note when Paul gives the contrast, the beautiful after, that this is going to change. There's going to be a different spirit. But this is the spirit that is natural to the world. So, they follow the course of this world. Second, they follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at now work in the sons of disobedience. Notice the third thing that he follows after. Uh, it goes on in verse 3, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body. So you follow the course of this world. They follow the prince of the power of the air. And those two things seem external to us. And so we might think initially, oh, good. <laughs> right? but, but notice why is it that people follow the course of the world? And why is it that they're drawn to the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience? It's because there's another pressure. There's another direction. There's another impetus leading in a certain direction. And that is our own, spirit, or our own dead spiritual flesh. He says that you followed the passions of the flesh, the desires of the human heart, the natural desires of the human heart, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. You see, the problem is not just external. It's not things that come out of us, but as Jesus says, uh, remember as Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, and they say, hey, what's up with your disciples? They didn't wash their hands. They're going to be defiled. And Jesus says, you are so concerned for the wrong thing. You're so concerned about what comes into the body. But here's what you ought to be concerned about. What's in the heart? What comes out of the heart defiles a man? And friends, have you looked at the sinful heart? Even the sinful heart that has been redeemed by Christ. If you look deeply in it, you see things that you wish were not there. The problem is not external to us, it's internal to us. The reason we walk according to the way of this world, the reason we walk according to the way of Satan is because this is precisely what we want to do. This is the desires of the flesh. In fact, Paul says in Galatians chapter five, because sometimes we may look at these desires of the flesh and think merely of sexual sins, which clearly implies that, but it's more than that. Notice what Paul says about the works of the flesh. And as I, as I mention these, think about your own heart. He says, now the works of the flesh are these. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And, and so some of us may say, oh, well, well I'm, I'm clear on, on many of those, but notice how he goes on. Enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. He goes on to say, things like these are the things of the flesh. And those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Friends, sometimes we look at the desires of the flesh and we think merely of of sexual sin, but that's, that's clearly not what the scripture is saying here. The scripture is saying that the desires of the flesh are those that lead us to consume, to always have, to have more. They're the things that lead us to envy. They're the things that lead us to strife. This is what James says when he says, why is there fighting among you? Because you desire to have and you don't have. And so, so you battle with one another. Why? why I mean, just, just think about your latest fight if it, with, a, with a child or... Um, with a spouse. And I bet if you pinpoint the reason for that fight, it has something to do with one of the things he says here. 
envy, the desire to have, the desire to control. These are the things of the flesh. But this is what Paul is saying. He's saying these are the things that lead us. This is the natural state of man. We're trying to picture the ugly before because you notice he said, you were dead. So this is what mankind is naturally like. In fact, that's what Paul says because he says in verse three, among whom we all once lived, this described all of us. And we were by nature children of wrath. What does Paul mean by nature children of wrath? Well, on the first side, by nature, uh, he's meaning by birth. This is the same thing he, he says in Galatians. He says, we who by nature are Jews. So what he's saying is we were, by means of birth, we were born as Jewish people. And then he says, here, <clears throat> you were by nature children of wrath. Can I point something out? This is, this is just significant. We live in a world today that says, if you were born that way, then that's okay. Then that's, that's, that's how God made you and you, you ought to pursue whatever passion it is you have because you were born that way. Let me say this passage right here says, you were in fact born that way. You were born with illicit, wrong passions and desires. This is the very nature of humanity. But that gives us no license to pursue those things. For in fact, when we see this, we say, yes, this is the nature of man. We are born broken. We are born following the course of this world, following the desires of the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. And we are this because this is our natural desire. And so when Paul puts together that we naturally follow after the world, the flesh and the devil, by the way, note that triad is remember is, John says in, in, uh, in John's epistle there, he says, this, this, is, flesh, this is worldliness, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Paul says, this is the natural state of man. This is, this is the ugly before. And none of us, none of us can say that didn't describe me or that doesn't describe me. Because here, here's the fact of the matter. What I'm saying here and what I'm echoing from Ephesians chapter 2 is very offensive. It's extremely offensive. I mean, it is essentially saying you are by birth unacceptable to God. And we live in a world today that says whatever it is, by birth, you are acceptable to God. And if someone says anything different, then they're evil. And let me just say, what that is, is that is following the course of this world. That is following the prince of the power there. That is following the lust of the flesh. That is precisely what God says that we need to turn from. So as we look at this picture, this is really bad news, right? And, and here's the thing, right? If you're going to hear good news, it always has to follow bad news. You can't have good news if there isn't bad news. Somewhere there had to be bad news in order for there to be good news. And what Paul presents to us is the worst of news. This is the ugliest before you could ever imagine. You were dead, right? Like not, and you were semi-conscious. You were in a state of coma. That's not the illustration Paul uses. He says, you're laying there dead in your trespasses and sins. So 
Um, so what does the beautiful after look like? Well, notice how Paul does not start it. He does not say, and so you were dead. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power there. You were following the lust of the flesh by nature, children of wrath. But then you stood up. But then the inklings of life began to stir among you because you really said, I'm going to change. Notice the most powerful verses, I think, or, ver, or ver, words in this passage, verse four. But God, so here it is. This is how bad it is. This is, this is how ugly the before is. You are dead. And people who are dead don't get up. But there is one who gives life. But God, who is rich, in mercy. Do you, do you realize how significant those two words are? If there, if there was no but God, there, there would be no story to tell. There'd be no hope. We'd still be dead. But actually, we're not left that way. But God, who is rich in mercy, he did something. What did he do? Because of his great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. He didn't give us a spark of life and say, now get up yourself. He made us alive. He gave to us that life. So let's consider then, we've, saw, we, we've seen the ugly before, let's consider the beautiful after. And notice what it says. There are, there are a couple of things that God does for us. The first is this, he makes us alive. And before getting there, Paul has to describe why it is that God does this. Verse four but being rich in mercy. That is, this is who God is. If, if you're asking the question, why does God raise the dead to life, the spiritual dead to life, it is because he is overabundant in mercy. He has an excess. We use the word rich to describe those who have a lot, a lot of resources. And of course, nobody ever describes themselves that way. It's always someone else. But, but they have more resources than they need, right? And here in reference to God, Paul says, he is overabundant. He is overflowing with mercy. This is the God who we know. And just think throughout the whole Old Testament, this, this, is, this was the, the Jewish call. Who is God? He is the one who's abundant in mercy. This is who he is. So this is the God. He's rich in mercy. And then it's because of his great love with which he loved us. But notice it's not merely that God, God just said, well, I, I love them, but, but it's in the worst possible situation. Because he goes on to say, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You see, God didn't, doesn't just love us now that were the beautiful after. But he saw that dead corpse, that spiritually dead corpse, and he loved. It was then, and this is what Paul says in Romans. He says, look, for, for good people, some might dare to die. <laughs> but for bad people, who's going to offer their life? Who's going to die in the place of bad people? Nobody. But God. 
When we were enemies, when we were hostile to him, when we were running the opposite direction, when we were following the course of this world, we were with everyone else going the wrong direction, we were following the dictates of Satan, when we were doing the things that our our sinful flesh desired, it was then that God stepped in and he gave life because he loves. He loved us. And his mercy was great. And so he the, the analogy here is he brought us to life. He gave us life. And then notice, notice what he says. He made us alive together with Christ. And by the way, no one will ever be given life without Christ. He is the cause for our life. And we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But, but we've been raised with Christ. And then you'll notice how the ESV does it. It's got these dashes, right? Uh, because what Paul is actually reserving the, the, the ultimate means by which we come to life for a little bit later, but he can't help but insert it here. So, so he's talking about what God's done, his rich in mercy, he's abundant in love. By grace, you're saved. He just can't help but say something about it. And then he jumps back to considering further what God has done for us. He's raised us up, in, or, or he's, he's given to us life. And then verse six, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, this is a challenging phrase because, of course, right now I look around and I'm not in the heavenly places with Christ, right? (laughs) So what does it mean that God has raised us up with with Christ? Well, I want you to look back at chapter 1. This is part of the reason why I read chapter 1. Notice what God did for Christ. Verse 20. Uh, In fact, we'll start in verse 19. Uh, We want to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his might that he worked in Christ. Notice what Paul's saying here. He's saying that the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that's at work in you. Right? He used the words of the song. Uh, he, He goes on verse 20. This is the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, and power. Notice then, jump down in chapter two. What did he do for us? He made us alive and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, you'll notice the difference. We are not seated at the right hand of God in the same way that Jesus is. Jesus takes the position of authority and power. And we're seated with Christ. That is, that it is because of where Jesus is seated that we have uh, position. So what what is uh, being communicated by this analogy? I think it's this, that when Jesus was raised to sit at the right hand of the Father, all authority, power, everything was subject to him. And now as we're raised with him, those spiritual powers that at one time legislated our lives, directed us, guided us. We were sons of disobedience. We were led by the spirit of this world. We are no longer under that. We have freedom because we are with Christ seated at the right hand of God. And of course, this is what he talks about in Colossians as well. He says, if your life is hid with Christ, then seek the things that are above. And the idea here is not that I'm literally there presently, but rather in in a spiritual way that that is my inheritance. That is the place reserved for us. So he's raised us 
from the dead. He's brought us to life. He's raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. Why did he do this? Why did he do this? And this is, this connects chapter one to chapter two. Why did he do this? He notice verse seven, so that, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So why did God raise you to life and seat you in the heavenly places with Christ? Why has he given you all of these blessings? To quote chapter one, to the praise of his glorious grace. Do you see, I find it fascinating how Paul talks about this. He says, so that in the ages to come, ages, I mean, there, there's a lot about eschatology I don't know. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot that's going to come in the, in the future. I think there's going to be a kingdom. I think there's going to be an eternal state. Um, but even as I say that, like, what's the eternal state going to be like? I really don't know. And, and I, I look forward to finding all that out. But here is what I know, that throughout the coming ages that are eternal, however many ages there are, whatever God's plan is in the future, that throughout all of it, that God's purpose in raising us up is so that he might be praised for his glory and his immeasurable riches. That Notice that he continually lavishes upon us. That in fact, it's not done in this life. We, we may think, okay, so, so he saved us, he's brought me to life and, and I'll get a place in heaven. But in fact, that all of what we receive in heaven is his kindness and mercy. And every day we are in eternity on the new heavens and the new earth. We will praise him for that. He has redeemed you so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches, so that he might continue to show through all of eternity how rich the sacrifice of Christ is for us. There will never come a period in our eternal existence where we won't remember Jesus did this for me. <clears throat> so we've considered the ugly before and boy, was it ugly. We've considered the beautiful after. And boy, is it beautiful. So now what Paul does is he presents to us a potent product. What is it that leads us from the ugly before to the beautiful after? How do we get from the ugly before to the beautiful after? And that's what he presents to us in verse 8. For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Let me just consider those two verses before hitting verse 10 in conclusion. Verse, verse 8, you've been saved through faith, and faith is not your own doing. This, the whole salvation is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And the illustration clearly shows this. You were dead. How'd you come to life? It wasn't you. Dead people don't come to life. But dead people can't be raised from the dead. And that's what Paul is saying. You've been 
If, if you have trusted in Christ, if you believed in him, then you've been saved by grace. And the means by which that happens is through faith. The simple acceptance of the fact that Jesus is who he, said he says he is. That his sacrifice is effective on your behalf. You are saved by grace through faith and that is not of yourself so that no one may boast. Friends, in 100 years from now, I hate to say it, but we'll all, we'll all like, likely be dead. We'll all be dead. And if the Lord hasn't returned, life will continue on. And again, I hate to say it, but most people will forget, forget we ever existed. But, but we'll all be dead. And, and here we are, and, and if you've trusted in Christ, you'll be in eternity. And we'll be there together. And if I come up to Eric in eternity and I say, Eric, how did you get here? You know what he's not going to say? Oh, man. You know, I, I was involved in, in preaching. I was involved in this, that, and the other thing. And we just showed faithfulness through our lives. And so that when we got there, Peter said, oh, yeah, check. Yeah, I mean, the balance is, you're good. What's Eric going to say? Jesus. He did it. And you know, if I went to every single one of you, the answer would be the exact same. And none of us will boast about what we've done. And in fact, the very reason why God has done it this way is so that in eternity, it will not be, hey, hey, hey yeah, just, I, I made it. It will be, oh, Lord, thank you that you're so gracious. That's why he's done it. So that in the coming ages, he might receive the glory throughout it all. This was his plan. This is his plan for you. That you would trust and that you'd believe, and that throughout all eternity, you would give him glory and praise for what he's done. So, what does that look like in our lives today? Um, verse 10. So, going back to our, our analogy, we've seen the beautiful, or the ugly before, we've seen the beautiful after, we've seen this potent product, the grace of God. And what I want to do here in verse 10 is suggest that there's a product guarantee uh, that when one has received this gift, that it makes a difference. Look, what, look with me in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me, let's consider what Paul's saying here. He's saying in, in verse 10, here's what God has done. He's raised you to new life. And he says, for we are God's workmanship. The word workmanship here is the Greek word that would be used of a artist creating a work of art. You are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpieces. He is, he is forming, shaping, fashioning us. He's making us into what he desires us to be so that we would be a picture of his grace. And so we are being formed and fashioned. We are his workmanship created, that is made new in Christ Jesus. Notice the next line, for good works. So here's the thing. You'll never be saved by good works. It's not the way it works. But those who are saved will have good works. Because that's what God does. If you ask the question, what does it mean that somebody is brought to life? 
It means that their life is changed. It means that they're not like they were. If this is the ugly before, and this is the beautiful after, will the person look different? They have to. If there's new life, then you can tell that the body's moving. If, if at one time they were following in the course of this world, they were following Satan, they were following the lusts of their flesh, then they should now be going against the tide of the world and they should feel the pressure of that. This is what Paul says when he says, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You try and go the other direction of the world and, and there's brushing shoulders. You ought to see in your life a fight, a battle over sin. And, and if you say, you know what, I, I really haven't, I haven't really been battling sin at all, then, then you ought to be concerned. Do you have new life? Because new life makes a difference. The ugly before doesn't look like the beautiful after. And if you say, hey, look, I'm the beautiful after, but you look exactly like the ugly before, people are going to say, well, maybe, maybe you actually haven't experienced the potent product. Have you experienced the grace of God? Because this is what God does. He takes people who are dead. He raises them to life. He changes them. He makes them into his masterpiece. Now, I have to say this. That, that doesn't mean he, he changes people at the same pace. And sometimes he takes people from the lowest of, uh, of positions. And, 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 and there's a lot of work to do. And so they're, they're changing. But they're changing is the point. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. And then notice this last line because this connects us to chapter one. Paul has been given to us the cosmic purposes of God in his creation. And he says, God has prepared you, which God prepared beforehand. That is the good works that you are to do. God prepared beforehand that you would do them. So here's the deal when when you were saved, if you have been saved, then God saved you with a plan, a purpose. He knew what he wanted the canvas to look like. He knew the good works that he wanted you to do as a believer. And the question is this, are we living faithful to what God is doing? Are we God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus? Because God's eternal purposes for you were to redeem you, to save you so that you might be a part of the church, a part of this big plan that he's doing. And he's working in each of us individually making canvases. This church, this church is, a, is like a museum, right? Um, an art gallery, I should, suppose I should say. Not museum, I'm not looking at any of you and thinking you're old. Um, it's, it's like an art gallery in which... Each of us are God's masterpieces, being fashioned, being formed to be the very thing that God desired from all eternity that we would be and are we being it. So as we conclude, here's a couple of questions. First, have you been brought to life? As I described the ugly before and the beautiful after, did you, did you not like me talking about the ugly before? Because uh, as you think about that, that, that's who you are. You're offended at what I've said. 
And I don't mind if you're offended at what I said, because at the end of the day, this is what God says. And if you're going to be offended, I think actually that's a good thing. We ought to recognize that this is what God says about our natural state. And, and my encouragement to you is that there's an eternity to come. And, and God has, has a plan. And if you trust in Christ, you can be God's masterpiece. But he also has vessels of judgment. And I trust that, that you would trust in the grace of God and be saved. But for you who might be a believer today, you say, I, I've trusted in Christ as you... Read through that, I, I, I said my amens to what I once was. I no longer that. I, I'm on the beautiful after side of things. Then praise be to the Lord for that. But my question to you is this. Are, are you currently being transformed? Are, are you, is the Lord doing work in your life to make you more and more like him? You see, when he saved you, he didn't save you so that one day he could just bring you to heaven. He saved you so that he could change you today. He saved you so that today you would be a masterpiece displaying his glory and character to the world around us. As Jesus said, you are the light of the world. The city that's set on a hill can't be hidden. Men don't put a candle under a basket, but they put it on the tabletop. It gives light to all that are in the house. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your father who's in heaven. Are your deeds giving glory to your Father who's in heaven? And if the answer is no, and if you've not been fighting against sinful, the sinful nature that is so natural to us as, as humans, then the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I really the, the beautiful after? Or am I really still the ugly before? And if we're the ugly before, there's hope. There's hope. Because the scripture provides to us a God who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. Father, I thank you for uh, this church and I thank you for your word. May your word impact your church in Jesus' name, amen.